This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Morena no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch-up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo irorangi onetangata o Manawatu. It is a Wednesday morning, so that means we turn to our attention to the media and we ask a very simple question. Who are you again? Yes, good morning, Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jimmy Ellingham, a regional reporter for RNZ, uh, theoretically based here at NPR in Palmerston North, um, but for COVID reasons and also uh, newsworthy reasons, you've not been been here a lot recently. No, I haven't been to the office really for the past couple of months apart no. from these catch-up sessions and the last one I was in Wellington for uh, a fortnight ago uh, when I was away down there covering not just the protest but mostly the, the parliamentary protest for a week or so. Mm. Um, and, you know, well well worth doing as well. And we should probably start with the protest because uh, I, I think most people were glued to one live stream or another. Of course, um, uh, stuff were live streaming I think RNZ were using that stream, but there were others as well. And just mind-boggling watching that all unfold from what was, in my my opinion, and I know others have different opinions, but in my opinion, a sort of eye-rolling, oh, look at all these people on the Parliament grounds, to full-on riot in, like, <laughs> very little time. Yeah, it was a fortnight ago today that the police moved in there and ended the anti-mandate protest occupation, call it, uh, what you will. Uh, I was there from about six o'clock in the morning. Uh, I woke up earlier than that because there was a helicopter buzzing <laughs> over over the hotel where I was staying. But we'd had tips the day before at Radio NZ that uh, police were going to move in the next day. But but you can never be sure if those will come off or not. And and, and that was the thing. The police were saying they were going to do a lot of things in the preceding days, like towing vehicles and things. And everything seemed like a bit of a damp squib. It never turned out the way. You, some had hoped. Yeah, and where I was staying, even talking to some police officers earlier in the week who were staying in the same hotel because it was nice and close to Parliament, <laughs> uh, some of them said they were due to go home that Wednesday, but that had been extended by a couple of days. So I thought, oh, maybe there is something in this. But of course, that could just mean nothing. It could be a relatively boring reason. But sort of about 5.30 in the morning two weeks ago, I was woken up by a helicopter and then got the call from someone at work saying you might want to uh, pop down. So I did, and I stayed for probably about 13 hours uh, wow. on the streets uh, that day, watching watching it unfold around Parliament, and, and it was quite uh, surreal, really, uh, watching it. So I didn't I didn't see any of the live streams, and I still haven't watched it. It, it was interesting as well how close everything was. As I say, I was watching the live stream, and the video journalist was having a hell of a time trying to get a good angle and things turned around, and there you were, but you were like five ten feet away. I mean, it yes, was and so we were on close. the side of the protesters, so uh, journalists were facing the police and their shields. But you had to be because if you weren't there, you couldn't actually see what was going on. Because mm. if you were too far back, there were too many people at, in the way. Plus, also Wellington being slightly hilly. If you were, if you didn't have a view looking over something, you, you just couldn't see what was going on. And my main role in that of the other RNZ journalists there was to do live crosses and say what we could see. So if you couldn't see anything, yeah. <laughs> it was a bit useless. So I, mean, I got a bit close perhaps on a couple of occasions. I got a bit of pepper spray. Uh, not full on, um, but uh, just a little taste in my eyes. And, and and did you use milk? No, I didn't use milk. Uh, <laughs> no one, the protesters didn't offer me any, strangely, but I'm sure they, 
<laughs> uh, they probably would have. Um, some of them I saw protesters who got pepper spray were also using just water. Yeah. Um, I, I just blinked it out because, as I said, I wasn't uh, – wasn't hit full I on. I don't want to ruin your cross. I don't know if it's the one we're about to play or not, but someone jumped into a fountain? People were. There was a, there's a water fountain outside the Court of Appeal, which if people know where that is, it's on uh, over the road from Parliament. There's lots of this High Court, Court of Appeal. It's mm. that sort of area, yes. uh, municipal area yes. or, or what your civic area, what you might call it. So some people were using water from that too uh, to clear their eyes uh, when the pepper spray was used. But yeah, uh, there's not probably a huge amount we can add about the protests, um, but uh, here's probably a bit of a sample of some of the crosses that, that I gave, and uh, oh, <laughs> it seems a bit uh, self-indulgent in a way, but it's just to let people know what I was seeing uh, that day and, and into the evening. And uh, we should note that this is Corin Dan's debut on NPR. Jimmy, uh, what can you see? Yeah, good morning, Corin. I'm standing just up Hill Street from uh, where Charlotte was, and we've actually just been pushed up a few uh, few metres by police who are standing across the street, and every few minutes they move a few metres forward, sort of driving protesters back towards the concrete blocks, which are halfway up Hill Street, signifying the perimeter of the protest. I did see them before going through tents in that cathedral area, and people were being moved out of there. Some of them not very happy about it, and there there was a few minor scuffles, but mostly people were leaving, and there's a few people in their cars on Hill Street sitting there waiting by the looks of it to be let out because the concrete blocks halfway up are currently blocking them in. Just repeating that we're seeing that an escalation of uh, exchanges between police and protesters outside the uh, appeal court this morning that has been uh, after this planned action this morning. Certainly uh, interactions between the police and protesters going on the last four or five minutes. Jimmy, are you still there? Yes, I am still here. So the pushing and shoving seems to have stopped for the moment, but there is a police line now extending right up to the doors of the Court of Appeal going right across Molesworth Street near this intersection. The shoving seems to have stopped. Um, I have seen a couple of police officers with pepper spray canisters. I haven't actually seen anyone uh, use it yet, but a couple of people in front of me, a couple of protesters got pepper spray in their eyes, so I think it has, there has been some use of that here. And now let's hear from Jimmy Allingham as our reporter who is also near Parliament. Jimmy, what is the situation where you are? Yeah, good evening. I'm standing on Bowen Street behind the War Memorial outside the grounds of Parliament. And things have calmed down a little bit now, but a few minutes ago there were some protesters here throwing missiles at the police, including bottles. I couldn't see what else uh, they were throwing. And the police had a... There's a line of police here with riot shields bending them off. Police then walked down from the parliamentary lawn towards the protesters, aiming a hose at them. And that seemed to calm things down a little bit. There were some minor scuffles... Uh, near Bowen Street in front of me as well. Reliving the trauma um, Mm. from uh, a couple of weeks ago down in Parliament. Yes, and if I sound a bit muffled, it's for two reasons. One is I was on a cell phone, which doesn't sound too good. The other was I had a mask on uh, the whole time, so I decided to keep that on. Uh, the whole day, even for probably wise. even for live uh, crosses. So if I do sound a bit muffled there, it was also very hard to hear when I was talking to the people in the studio. It doesn't quite come across there, but it was very loud because mm. there was loud hailers from police telling people to move. 
loud hailers from protesters with various chants and just a lot of shouting from, from everyone really. So uh, it doesn't quite come across there just how loud it was. Well, well done to, to, to you and to everyone at RNZ uh, for covering that so comprehensively. Um, of course, uh, today it marks the day where the Parliament grounds are reopening. Uh, apparently the lawns are still cordoned off because that has been re-sown. Um, and the Give a Little page to um, fix the playground has been sort of endorsed by Speaker of the House, Trevor Mallard, and he's suggesting it might even be a bit bigger, better, more colourful than it was before. Yeah, because it was relatively small. It was mm. just something to climb on in a, in a slide. I mean, you've as prob- the protesters <laughs> did. <laughs> you've probably given it a go as well, Fraser, when no, you're in Wellington, but no, no. Uh, uh, there's definitely room to expand that. When you're my height, uh, even <laughs> a sort of uh, cheeky slide down a slide is met with some derision. Um, let's move on from that uh, rather interesting chapter in New Zealand history. Uh, very quickly, uh, an update on the pandemic situation, I guess, as it relates to Mid-Central. Yeah, I don't think we need to spend too too long on this, but uh, it is worth checking off that yesterday there were about 880 cases of uh, COVID in the Mid-Central region, which wow. is the highest of our daily uh, totals. And that's predicted to peak at something about along the lines of 1,100 okay. uh, a day. And it could happen. So that's, that was 800 new ones on top of yes. what we already have. Yeah, yeah. so there's 5,132 active mm. cases. And remember when it was a few hundred a day across the country? Yeah. Do, do you remember during the first look uh, down too, when it sort of got to 100 a day and then yeah. went back down to 70 or 60? Uh, it seems like a long uh, time ago, doesn't it? But nationally yesterday, there were 21,660. Uh, cases. I'm not sure if you isolated had to isolate yet. Or no, I, I had to briefly whilst I was waiting for a PCR test, but I I got the result back within five or six hours, so I oh, didn't that, have to quick, do anything yeah. that way. No, I haven't yet too, but uh, it seems like in a way it's something that we all ought to prepare for, mm. uh, I, at least. I do have four children in three schools, though, so I suspect it's going to happen at some point. Yes, yeah, so I saw something like 90-something percent of schools in this region uh, have had COVID cases. Mm-hmm. And 80-odd percent up in uh, Auckland as well, so yes. Um, well, we'll keep an eye on that, of course, as well. Uh, Mid-Central have got the uh, dedicated ward sort of ready to go, and there is another one ready to go as there well. Is, there's there is. There's one on standby, so I've got the ward that we've spoken about before, yep. I think, that had that work done on last year. 30 beds, I seem to remember, 20 or 30. So, yeah, something yeah. on those lines. And then there's another ward on standby, yep. uh, as it were, in case it's needed. Plus, this week, there was also some visiting rule changes uh, announced for the hospital. It's just tightened a bit, and sometimes people have to have rat tests, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if they're not vaccinated. And most visitor numbers have been limited to one a day, just to try to get fewer people yeah. uh, through to hospital and limit uh, Which is a risk. tough time if people are in hospital for serious reasons and needing to see loved ones that is, uh, yeah, not great. Yeah, and, and the hospitals said that a lot of people who are in hospital with COVID, they haven't gone there for COVID uh, yeah. reasons. They've gone on for some other reason. I can't breathe properly. I wonder why. <laughs> yes, yes, you're referring to the Liz Gunn uh, <laughs> video Couldn't there. Couldn't possibly but, uh, comment. But uh, they, they go there with some other uh, possible um um, you know, source of sickness and then end up in the COVID ward because they, they test positive uh, mm. when they're in the hospital. We are here with Jimmy Ellingham, regional reporter for RNZ, looking at what he has been reporting on in the last couple of weeks, obviously uh, usually focused around Manawatu, um, given the title, regional reporter, but given the events in Wellington, some uh, reprioritization has had to occur. Uh, although there are a couple of local stories on the way, but for now uh, you wanted to address the cost of living. Yeah, another nationally focused story perhaps, and uh, <laughs> I haven't done many local stories these past couple of weeks just because uh, focus has been elsewhere plus RNZ 
as everyone else uh, has probably experienced too, we've been hit a little bit by Omicron cases, mm-hmm. so people have to fill in on in roles that they might not uh, normally take part in. But the other day I did a story about cost of living, and this is on the back of the petrol price uh, rise through $3. Don't, uh, I need to go and get petrol today, and I know the government's issued the, the tax relief, yeah. but that's not a relief, really. No, no, I mean, it, it's better than nothing in a way, and as we know, food prices up 6%. Uh, fruit and veggies, I saw up seventeen percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and year. how much did salaries go up? <laughs> yeah, the jewels not go up seventeen <laughs> <laughs> percent. Oh, the mere thought. Yes. Um, anyway, and that, that, that is the fair point. Of course, uh, housing as well. The cost of well, that, that's like gone up fifty percent the past couple well, of years, isn't it? It's the cost of rent plus uh, if you if you hold a mortgage and uh, interest rates look like they're going up. So. Uh, not a lot of relief uh, in sight there. But I spoke to several uh, people the other day, the likes of Grey Power, a budget advisor and students union, uh, all of whom say that when those sort of costs go up, mm. the thing that gets skimped on and sometimes people go without is food, uh, which is a terrible situation really, isn't it? Well, and that's it's, because insane. it's because those fixed costs, they have to come out. Yep. And what's left for food might either be quite meagre or non-existent. And a budget advisor called Fiona Govinder, she's from Auckland, She's been a budget advisor for four years, and she says food gets squeezed, basically. People pay their rent first, and they have to get to work and use petrol, so what they have left for food can be very sad. It's not doable. And uh, Andrew Lascelles, who's the president of the New Zealand Union of Students Associations, uh, said that universities across the country are reporting a rise in food parcels Mm. and care packages having to be handed out, and he's hearing from people Anecdotal evidence, of course, that people are either dropping out of study or doing distance learning yep. uh, because they can't afford to live. And, and you have to wonder, in, in places like Wellington uh, in particular, Auckland seems to have reached a ceiling for rents, yeah. particularly with, I think— Well, we've said that before. <laughs> well, for, for rents, and that's in the, in the inner city, particularly, I think, with the absence of foreign students. They're still probably quite high, but yeah, they're yeah. just not going up. Whereas Wellington, shortage of accommodation, skyrocketing mm. prices— And there's been press reports, hasn't there, about how viewings of flats can be attended by dozens and dozens of people or groups. Uh, so it sounds oh, it happens. It happens here in Palmerston North as well. Mm. Um, I, I've I've occasionally gone and looked at, at rental properties because you know you'd like to think you could maybe find something a bit better. Just streams and streams of people uh, going through looking for houses. We spoke to Tang Yutakeri, uh, member of Parliament for Palmerston North, last Friday uh, on this cost of living uh, crisis, not crisis, urgent situation, whatever you want to call it, um, and and he was criticising uh, the opposition for suggesting tax cuts are the way to fix this. Um, and I suggested, well, okay, if on the other side of the coin, upping the minimum wage, for example, would be uh, a way to tackle this. If you, if someone is on the minimum wage uh, working 40 hours a week and you give them an extra dollar after tax, an extra dollar in their pocket per hour, that's $40 a week. What is that going to do? It's not even going to touch the sides. It might uh, might be the extra petrol costs. Yeah, uh, exactly. But you're right. It does, it's not going to make a difference to the food or the housing or the energy. And, and that's the thing. He's saying, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors, which I appreciate, but that means this is going to take years to fix, which he disputed. And people can listen to the, the, the interview again at npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch up. Uh, but he disputed that it would take years and actually they'd but move quite quickly on this. It's not like it's a new situation. So the housing costs, that's been coming up for years, food for years, petrol potentially uh, expedited by the Ukrainian situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not like any of this; these cost of living pressures have just come from nowhere, is no. it? They've built 
built slowly and actually increasingly rapidly yes. over quite a few years now. And salaries just have not kept up. Um, so, I, yes, I, I, I don't know what the solution is. My brain is not that clever, but something needs to be done and something quite radical. It was on RNZ, I think, on the panel. Uh, there was a gentleman on there saying, isn't it interesting when there's this uh, a huge international crisis, a pandemic, where some real out-of-the-box thinking is required to survive. Uh, and we can do it. And the money appears, and it doesn't seem to affect the the, the, grand, the greater budget of, of the country. We can make it work. Yet when you have a situation where people are not eating, they don't have substantial uh, roofs over their head, their salaries aren't keeping up, suddenly there's not a great deal we can do <laughs> that's that out-of-the-box radical thinking. Like, you know, universal basic income. There's a radical idea, but it's been proven to work in other parts of the world. You know, this is a chance to experiment and try something because if you don't, it's not going to get better quickly. There's an old comedy sketch that might be Monty Python, I'm not too sure, isn't it, where someone from Earth is trying to sell the planet Earth basically to someone from a different planet and trying to explain that we have enough food to feed people yet there's people dying from starvation Yes, and this person just doesn't understand who's not from planet Earth and it, it seems a bit like that in a way doesn't it, like you say how on earth do we get to this situation um, concerningly I spoke to Grey Powers National President Jane, uh, sorry, Jan Pentecost and she said for older people in particular uh, especially those who don't own their own home all live alone or both, mm -hmm. that can be they're particularly vulnerable at the moment because of all these increasing costs that are falling just on them yes. on a sole income. And of course, benefits, pensions do go up the annual rise in April. Yeah, but you've got to be able to negotiate all that stuff. You've got to be able to spend the time it wins and work through with your representative. I mean, I'm not sure how it works, but go in there and talk and, and find out what benefits you're entitled to. Wins has a nasty uh, reputation, which maybe is not born in most cases, but of sort of withholding that information to keep the budgets down. It's just, it's mm. not, ugh. And from May, the winter energy payment comes in, which, which will make a difference surely but once again if costs are rising it's just it's eating into that less uh, isn't it and the other thing that Jan Pentecost said is many older people might be isolating at the moment because of the Omicron wave so the likes of the petrol costs might not uh, be a factor yet yes. because they're not actually travelling but then all of a sudden they might finish their COVID isolation but end up being isolated for different reasons because they can't afford to travel, particularly if they're not on a public transport route, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And likewise with heating. She said it's a bit too early in the year, um, but that we might feel those effects in a month or two as winter starts to bite. Indeed. Uh, we are here with Jimmy Ellingham from RNZ. If you'd like to listen to this or previous editions of The Catch-Up, you can do that on the website, npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your online listening. Um, uh, disgruntled equestrians is the next topic. <laughs> yes, yes, from the cost of living to uh, to horses. And uh, last Friday I went to fielding where horses took over three kilometres of the city centre, the, the town centre for a little while. They rode from Manfield to Manchester Street, mm -hmm. about 30-odd people on horses. Where they this is how you protest people. <laughs> yes, yes. So you see on the Equestrian Advocacy Network and it handed over a petition signed by 6,500 people to Rangatike MP Ian McKelvey and the petition calls for uh, the equestrian community to be consulted when transport projects are built. So mm. not just walkers and cyclists, think of horse riders too. And according to the network, there's more than, than 100,000 
horse riders in New Zealand, so that's a considerable chunk of the population. McKelvey will take that petition to Parliament where it goes to the Petitions Committee who will decide what happens next, mm. perhaps goes they, to the Transport Select Committee. They were originally going to go to Parliament, weren't they? But something else happened that made that not possible. Yes, there were a few things on. There was uh, the protest <laughs> as well as uh, COVID mm. uh, reasons. But yes, the idea was to ride the horses through Wellington to Parliament, which would have looked uh, spectacular. But anyway, here's the start of the report that I filed uh, last week. The sound of horses is one these people want to be front of mind in transport projects. About 30 people rode through fielding today to present their petition to Rangatike's MP Ian McKelvey. The New Zealand Equestrian Advocacy Network co-chairman is Arthur Yeo. He says they want to be treated the same as pedestrians and cyclists. This is about making sure that the New Zealand government recognise our needs as recreational riders in legislation. Currently, no government planner or designer is required by law to consult the equestrian group. Arthur Yeo says New Zealand's got more than 100,000 riders and they're losing access to off-road land while riding on the road isn't always safe. Lots of drivers will go past horses really quickly sounding their horn and yelling out the window and lots of horses can cope with that but some can't and if they can't they'll just dive out in front and everyone's worse off. For the record, if you are a motorist speeding past a horse rider blaring your horn, you're a moron. Yeah, well, most of the people I spoke to actually don't ride their horse on the road because of it's just not safe, they mm, say. Mm. A couple of people said that um, sometimes people, they slow down as they go past and then speed off, which has the same effect. <laughs> yes. you, might as well, you might as well just speed uh, past. But uh, you, you notice the sounds of the horse's hooves. Yes, well done, the, sir. Yes, that's one thing I like about radio uh, <laughs> yeah. is doing that. And uh, horses, Jimmy got a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a, a, a train spotter at the early, early start of his RNZ career. Yes, I did a couple of stories about trains, but the reason I like train stories is because the sounds are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only does this the sound of trains. I did a story once about people fixing up some older trains, and the sounds for that were really, really quite amazing. Um, getting that, well, getting back to the, the story, I mean, it, it doesn't seem unreasonable to just want a bit of consultation. The only thing I'd say is there are a lot of different groups. Uh, I, I dabbled in longboarding for a while, and it would, you know, it'd be nice to have some great downhill stretches that we could use. And is that being factored in? But then every, everyone's got their own take on things, I suppose. Exactly. There are 100,000 100, people riding horses and they say that they're increasingly being forced off their traditional off-road mm. parts where they ride. You know, bridle tracks are now becoming walking and cycling tracks, which they can perhaps still use, but they're not dedicated uh, to horses or they're getting the gates closed in some instances uh, too. Uh, Linda Stewart, formerly of uh, the Central Economic Development Agency yes. and now Waka Kotahi. Waka Kotahi New Zealand Transport Agency says, well, consultation is open to all interested parties, and that the Equestrian Network has taken part. For example, on the Replacement Gorge Highway, it has made a submission about the the shared Mm. pathway there. She said challenges for shared pathways uh, for horses, walkers and cyclists include space, Mm. grade separation and wear and tear, uh, among others. That sounds fair. The Equestrian Network, I don't think it's demanding that there's a bridal track on every project. No. It's more asking, can we be consulted? Like, you, you wouldn't expect a cycle lane on, on every road, but be consulted, yeah. Yeah, and Ian McKelvey said there's 
plenty of opportunities to, to think about the, the equestrian uh, community. He said he's been around horses all his life and it was a cause that uh, he was, mm. uh, he probably told you this on the catch-up too, it was a yes. cause that he, he was quite close to. Uh, how many horses do you think there were in fielding on, when they, they went to Ian's office? Probably about 30, just okay. uh, over a couple of dozen. Uh, I counted 20-something, so mm. close to 30. So assuming they were being responsible, that's a reasonable-sized shovel. Yes, and, and they were. There were people going behind them uh, <laughs> shoveling. <laughs> With their hands cupped. <laughs> yeah. and, and as they went around town, there were quite a few people tooting at them, and I heard a couple of the riders say, I think they're supporting us. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it was well organised. The police were there too, uh, to, to direct traffic, and uh, it caused minimal disruption. Quite a few people coming out of shops to, uh, to see what it was about. I yes. think it's quite a sight, uh, seeing people. Fielding's get a lot of this action at the moment now, because uh, the, the, the uh, Māori wards protest as well. It was nice marching in that and seeing people coming out of their businesses and clapping and everything else. It's, it's a good feeling when you do it properly. <laughs> don't know what you mean by that, but yeah, lots of people coming out of their businesses and Lots of photos being taken of these horses uh, going down Manchester Street and Kimbolton Road. Well, it won't it be was. a sight you see very often. No, so. no, it's been a long time since you've probably seen horses ridden mm. uh, ridden down uh, around Fielding Street. So uh, from that point of view, it was actually quite nice uh, to see. And it was on a Friday too, so a few people in town, but they did it early Friday afternoon after the busy uh, fielding market and sale yards uh, times have almost finished. Mm. Uh, we've got about four minutes left, just enough time to talk about a meteorite. Yes, so this is not, there's nothing new in this, but uh, there was a meteorite that crashed into Manawatu in 1976. Uh, a farmer called Ray DeRose was harrowing a field. Uh, in Manawatu, and uh, he uh, he came across a, a rock. I, I think perhaps taking up the story is Vince Neal, who is an emeritus professor of earth science at Massey University. Here he is. A large sort of heavy rock kept catching in the equipment, and as he passed over, as he was harrowing, uh, this caught in the equipment, and he picked it up and threw it to one side, and in the next pass it got caught again, and he became so infuriated with it... <laughs> He picked up a uh, a large sledgehammer that he had with him and smashed it. So it then broke into about 20 pieces, uh, not knowing what it was at all. After a wee while, his son, uh, Ronald DeRose, uh, thought that this was such an oddity, he, he went to the paddock and he gathered as many of the pieces as he could together and subsequently glued them back into the form that they originally had into, shall we say, one object, although a few of the pieces were missing. Uh, plenty of time on his hands then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Ronald DeRose... I'm going to glue this rock back together again. Well, Ronald DeRose happened to be an earth science student at right, Massey University, okay. and he, he brought this rock in as part of an exercise they were doing, where it was discovered, of course, it was a, a meteorite, and uh, Ronald DeRose died in 2013, but him and his dad's uh, names live on, as it were, through this uh, rock that 1976 it fell. Since then, only one further meteorite has fallen uh, in New Zealand. That was in 2004 when it went into an Auckland living room. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whereas this one, uh, it's hard to tell exactly where... Not a Westy one. <laughs> I don't know where in Auckland. <laughs> it's hard to tell exactly where this meteorite, uh, when exactly it fell. Sometime in the last 10,000 years apparently. It was um, good to be accurate. Yes, but um, that's gone on your soil layers. Cause right, right yes, I mean, of course. Yeah, you don't know exactly. It could have fallen the day before or it could have been, you know, uh, quite a few thousand years ago. And it's about, it weighs about 7 kgs. It's about the size of a rugby ball. And they think it's that's a fraction, they think, of the meteorite uh, that fell. So mm. there's a third of it living uh, at the Massey University in Palmerston North. 
a third of it is at the uh, Canterbury Museum, which has a very large collection of meteorites, and a third sort of been broken up for various studies uh, down the years. But I thought that was rather interesting that we have that uh, sort of hidden away yes. in Palmerston North. Um, the, the, the present Massey University Professor of Earth Sciences, uh, Georg Zelmer, says it's about four and a half billion years old, this meteorite, and such things are important because they show how the universe was created, meteorites happened presumably when there was the, um, the solar, I think it's called a solar nebula or something, which is these big spans of, uh, of activity which created the solar system. I've probably got that wrong. It's but a it's testament <laughs> to the strength of superglue as well. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But anyway, very old, very old, very violent beginnings. And uh, Vince Neal, who you heard from there, uh, says a lot of people think they found a meteorite, but what they've often found is metal slag or rocks or something uh-huh. like that. And the other thing is if it's warm to touch, it's not a meteorite because despite the fiery entry they get through the earth, um, one thing that is known about them is by the time they hit the ground, they are cool. Ah, so there's been Take no- that, science fiction movies. Yeah, exactly. There's been nine meteorites found in New Zealand uh, down the years. Most recent, as I said, in 2004. Two were found in 1976. So it's quite a rare find. And, uh, yeah, one of them came into a field near... Uh, Kimbolton, that's called the Kimbolton Meteorite because the convention is you name them after the nearest post office, which at that point <laughs> was Kimbolton 5Ks away. You'd be a bit hard-pressed now. It yes. <laughs> Wellington. <laughs> yes. We found a meteorite in Apity. Let's call it the Palmerston yeah, North Meteorite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jimmy Ellingham from uh, RNZ, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Fraser. And uh, tomorrow at half past eight on the catch-up, we'll be speaking to Councillor Rachel Bowen from Palmerston North City Council. Of course, on Friday at half past eight, MP for Rangitiki, Ian McKelvey will get his take on the horses and fielding as well. Have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye for now. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.